Morning. Morning to those of you watching online as well. Welcome to our 1030 service this morning. If you were not here last week, that video was an introduction to a new series, uh, Rights and Freedoms. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll get to chapter 8 in a, just a minute. You can open up or turn on to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in your New Testament. But it's part of a larger study, and I want to say that uh, for all of us, really, but especially if you haven't been here, something we started in the fall, took some breaks, and it's a larger study. But we're breaking it up, trying to stay true to some key ideas, key teaching, key principles. This one we talked for last four weeks in the whole month of July, January about relationships in the gospel, sex in relationships, some topics that were a part of those chapters in 1 Corinthians and in, in just up to this spot. Here, same congregation, same dialogue between the apostle and the guy in, in the congregation he started, but sort of changing subjects, rights and freedoms. And that's where we are here uh, this morning. But let me say this, very important, I say this. I started back in the fall saying this big idea, and I want to keep coming back to it, that really I want you to think about everything that we look at in the context of this study, the whole book. Um, I I labeled this study in, in the fall, Seeing All of Life Through the Gospel. So whatever topic we're talking about, maybe it's sex and relationships, maybe it's division among people, people, you know, how to treat each other, taking them to court, not taking them to court. There's many things. Now we're going to talk about a new subject here this morning. The most important thing, okay, isn't even so much the individual issue, which may or may not be one that's true for you in this or that chapter, but it's do you and I know how to see all of life through the gospel, unless you learn to apply the gospel, what do I mean by the gospel? I mean the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, the love of God that came to you, that comes to you even daily, and in the experiencing a deeper level of the forgiveness of sin, experience a deeper le- level of union with the living Jesus, that's what I mean by applying the gospel, unless you learn to apply the gospel to all the questions and challenges in your life, your life, my life, even in church, will not change. That's the interesting thing. Here's what can happen to a lot of Christians. Your faith journey can become accumulating a lot more right answers, and that's not unimportant, You've heard me say that. You know, uh, uh, John and Pete just mentioned this. I'm all about right answers. You, we all need to be students of the word. But if you don't really learn how to apply the gospel, taking those words of Jesus, taking those words of the writers of Scripture, taking the word of God, and using the gospel to apply them to the challenges in your life and to the questions in your life, your faith journey even in church, even over decades, can be simply accumulating more and more right answers but not necessarily experiencing change in your life. Okay? Very, very important uh, you get that as we look at all of these subjects, and we're going to look at another one this morning. Now, the issue, very quickly, that dominates the next three chapters, we're just going to head it, take it face on maybe this morning, is an issue that none of us have in this room. And virtually no Christians have on the planet, maybe a few. But let me say what it is and then try to apply it to us. What is the issue that we're about to read about? It's about um, Christians, people in this congregation, it's only five years old, who became Christians and started to experience a practice, go back to doing something that they did before they were Christians, 
and some other Christians in the same congregation criticized them for it. That's the setup. Now, what was the practice? They would go and eat into pagan idols or or pagan temples, sort of churches of the ancient world outside of Judaism and Christianity, which was brand new. They had a lot of pagan religions. You see this throughout your New Testament. And, and, And they would worship idols and they would come in and bring sacrifices just like other, let's say the Jewish religion did. They would have animal sacrifices, maybe other kinds of sacrifices, money, uh, whatever the case may be. And they, to a pagan god, it's very popular, and they would go to these temples and that was part of the religion of many of people of the ancient world, especially in Europe where we are here. However, these pagan temples were more than just a place to go to exercise worship. They were kind of community centers. They were kind of watering holes. And you would also go to these temples to go to a graduation party, to go to a wedding uh, ceremony, to go and have, you know, play uh, uh, euchre. I don't know if they had euchre back then. But anyway, the point was they were places where people gathered, number one. Number two, in this culture, it was one of the few places, not the only place, where you could get meat. You and I go to all kinds of grocery stores. It's ubiquitous in our culture, not all over the world, but we don't have that issue anymore. But in this culture, meat eating was for, not necessarily for everybody, perhaps the more money you had, the more access you had to it, but a lot of the meat in this culture was originally gone from the farm to the temple. And then it, it was used for a particular purpose there. And, and, but then it was, when it, that purpose was over, it might end up having a meal right there in this community center temple. It might end up in the grocery store. The problem was some Christians who used to go there, whether they went to worship or they went there just for the bar mitzvah or for the wedding party, they continued to go there. And they distanced themselves. Well, I'm not a worshiper of the pagan god but I'm going to take the invitation to go to this gathering. And other Christians in the community said, you shouldn't do that. That offends me because I associate going to that place with bad things and and, and, and ungodly things and perhaps worshiping uh, false gods. Are you with me? Okay. Now, that's not your problem and that's not my problem. However, it raises a question that's very common to our lives as Christians today, here it is. How much should I allow other people's views to control my actions? Okay? When I say other people, I'm other Christians. Okay? This is, this is a message about Christians. How much should I allow other people's view to control my actions? Must I limit my liberty in what I'll call morally neutral behaviors Okay, that's the, those terms aren't in the Bible. But there's a lot of things the Bible talks about. Adultery's still wrong, right? Murder is still wrong. But there's a lot of things the Bible doesn't talk about. And we'll call these behaviors that you and I may or may not do, we'll call them morally neutral behaviors. Should I limit my liberty in these morally neutral behaviors uh, by narrow, more restricted view, by the narrow and more restricted view of others. Okay, that's the question. Well, what are some examples, Rob? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to overdo the list because I might miss yours. But how about drinking alcohol? Right? I mean, it's a popular one. You know, you know, I used to be very much involved in alcohol. If that was my case, maybe I was even an alcoholic before I became a Christian. Now I'm not. And God has done something in my life. I have a different relationship with alcohol. But I see you going to the local pub or I see you there or uh, at the wedding party having a good time. And it may 
uh, strike some uh, issue in me. Maybe, maybe, I had a, maybe prior to becoming a Christian, I had a strong uh, wealth was my God and money was my God. And now I'm hanging out with people who are Christians and they drive an $80,000 automobile. Right? I'm just making that up, okay? And maybe they think, well, that isn't really a, a, a right way to go. Maybe, I'm, maybe there's people that I hang out with who are members of exclusive country clubs. And is that, I, I would have thought that was something that a Christian didn't do. I'm just making this up. But here's the main point. Let's call it gray areas. This is a topic, these three chapters, talking about gray areas. And every, the gray areas are different for all of us. But they're things that are not specifically talked about, proscribed, said you sh- that you should not do them in the New Testament. But this is a question Maybe Let me give you the sermon on the front end in case you don't hang in there, okay? This is not a question of having the right answers. It's a question of having the right heart. It's the essence of what Paul's going to say. There's going to be a lot of things that come up about your relationship with God, what you do, exercising your freedoms, and other people judging you, and you responding to that. Or maybe you're the one that's judging. But the point is it's not a question of having the right answers, that's a wrong way to think about what it means to be a Christian. It's a question about having the right heart. And my question to you today is, how's your heart? Okay, having the right heart. Okay, the power of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. Let's dive in. Apostle Paul. And like we saw last week, there's going to be a lot of yes, but. Paul is responding to a letter he got from this congregation and he, a lot of times there's quotes in the passage where he's quoting what they said, and then he's saying, yes, but. What you said is true, but. Now about food sacrifice to idols, that was their question in their letter to him, we all know, we all possess knowledge, quote unquote. That's what they said. Let me give you their argument in a sentence. We all know, we, the, the, the people writing this letter to Paul, we all know that idols are nothing, that Jesus Christ is the only true God and that therefore it doesn't matter if you go in and out of these temples to have a meal. We know there's nothing behind the curtain. It's all man-made religion. We all have knowledge. And Paul's saying, that's true. Yes, but. But knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. It's a fancy way of Paul saying, be careful whether or not you really do know what you're talking about. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we all know that an idol is nothing in all the world and that there is no God but one, quote unquote. He believes that too. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many lords, a lot of man-made religions, idols going on out in the world, Yet for us, Christians, for us, followers of Jesus, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now wait for it. But not everyone in the church, is what he means, possesses this knowledge. <clears throat> not everybody knows what you know. Some people are still so accustomed, those people are Christians, still so accustomed to the idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think, it's as if, it's, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Okay? 
it is defiled. As is the case always, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us apply timeless truths, right? There's a timeless truth here. To apply timeless truths to our lives here today. Here's my, really one of my main points. The Christian, true Christian love is true Christian freedom. True Christian love is true Christian freedom. What do I mean by that? (coughs) Much of the next three chapters, but starting in this one, the Apostle Paul is going to address his congregation um, as weak and strong. Literally uses the the, the adjective here twice in this particular chapter. The weak and the strong. Now when he's talking to the weak and the strong, he's not talking about physically weak and physically strong. He's talking about people's appreciation, understanding, and um, ability to um, know the the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying there are some, the strong Christians are those who have a deep grasp, a deep appreciation. They understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the justification by faith. They know that um, in, a, in a deep way in their lives, and that influences their lives. The weak Christians, this is just one issue, meat, sac- eating meat sacrificed at pagan temples, are people that are still Christians. They're still going to heaven when they die. They're still part of the local church, but they're people who have a weaker understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They have a weaker understanding of what it means to experience complete forgiveness in Jesus, and therefore they struggle in some other areas that the strong don't. For sake of time, you might say the weaker Christians tend to be more legalistic. In other words, they think, you, yes, you're saved, but you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do this, you should do this, and you should do this. Well, why do they think that? Not because they're know-it-alls, not because they're just, they want to be in your business. They think that way because they haven't fully appreciated in the deepest part of who they are the level of God's grace and forgiveness that it's all about what he has done for you. And so therefore, even though they're Christians, they're struggling every day at different levels of trying to feel acceptable to God as they work out their Christian faith. He's writing to the strong. He's writing to the weak. But the strong Christian, ask yourself this question today in the next two weeks, is the one who understands the most important thing is not, in in being a Christian, the most important thing is not what you know, but what you know is important. You hear me say that a lot. But the most important thing is not what you know, but that you are known and loved by God. That's the most important thing. That's what he's saying here in his clever way in verse 2. Those of you, because they say we all have knowledge, And they say, listen, what it means to be a Christian is the more you know, the the deeper you are. The more you know, the smarter you are about God. The more you know, the more mature you are. And sometimes we're going to look down on people who don't know what we know. And that's not all wrong because Christianity is based on knowledge to a degree. But Paul's saying that's not the ballgame. Really, where the true heart of knowledge in Christian life is that you are known by God and you are loved by God. But whoever loves God is known by God. You could say this in another way. Whoever loves God truly knows. Okay? Truly knows. That's what he's really trying to say. 
And unless Jesus Christ, the person, work, and teachings of Jesus form your identity to the core, which is what he's getting at in this little affirmation in the end of verse 6, right? And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Unless the, the work of Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus Christ, forms your identity and forms your core, shapes your behavior, you're going to... Um, miss the point of the Christian life. You're going to get off on the wrong path. And what, he, what I'm saying here is this is true freedom. Knowing that God knows you and knowing deeper and deeper that he loves you. This is the essence of true freedom. Now the problem is he's addressing the strong. Those are the people he's encouraging to behave differently. The problem is this. You can have good theology, startly important, but that good theology has not worked its way down into your heart. Okay? You can have good theology, but that good theology has not worked its way down into your heart. It hasn't changed your life. My small group this past week, talking about the study that we were doing, and, and this couple shared a story, a woman in my small group, about when she was younger, her and her husband, in their marriage, younger in their faith, they went to a concert here in Rochester. They're walking up to that concert. They're on their way, streaming in. And there's a, there's a guy out there standing on something, you know, uh, preaching away at the, at the people coming into the concert. You know, just talking about the, you must be born again, whatever he was talking about, sharing the word. God, should I looked at him and I, I, the word sounded right. Nothing he said I didn't believe, but something didn't seem right about his, what he, his, his attitude. It didn't seem like it was loving. And so I went up to him and said, you know, introduced, she quickly introduced herself to him. Said, listen, you know, just want you to know right away because I'm sure he was anxious about people coming. And she said, I'm, I'm a Christian. You're, I'm your sister in Christ. All's well. I'm on your team. And then she said, but I just want to say something to you. Um, you seem to me, I, everything you said matches for me. I like it, the words, but it doesn't seem like it's coming forth in love. That was a bold thing to say. And he said, well, listen, I'm just worried. I want people to make sure they, they hear the word of the Lord. She said, I'm with you, but I'm not sure they're hearing you because it's not coming in a loving way. And we thought, I said, wow, that's a bold thing to do. And I said, or someone said, what did he say? How did it go? And she said, he looked at me and said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And she said, I was so shaken. Finally, some, one of her crew friends or husband or somebody just gently walked her away. And she said she was shaking. Now, here's my point. From what she said, his theology was sound. The words, if I wrote them on a piece of paper, you'd say, if you're a Christian, probably say, amen. But it was clear to me in that story that what he said to his sister in Christ and what he may have said to the streaming crowds was not um, motivated by love, or there wasn't love there, okay? True Christian love is true Christian freedom. What does that mean? That is, the aim of my freedom in Christ, if I'm strong, Christian, so to speak, is supposed to bend toward love. And my question in this day, in this few weeks is, is that the case in your life? Over, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, are you 10 years more loving in the way in which you express your faith than you were 10 years ago? Is your freedom bending toward love? 
in relationships, most importantly for this sermon, with other Christians. Second, true Christian love puts others' needs ahead of your freedom. This is really the the challenge. True Christian love puts others' needs at times, at times, and in unique situations, ahead of your freedom. Verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. It's another one of these sayings that Paul's going to say, yes, but. They, they were saying, listen, Paul, what's the big hang-up? Food doesn't make you closer to God, and not eating food of any kind doesn't make you. So let's all get over that. And Paul would say, you're right, but be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, the rights to, to go to the to the the party at the temple, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, it's kind of a little tongue-in-cheek here, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed, destroyed by your knowledge. When, you're, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ because Christ is in them. They're weak. Maybe they're a little legalistic. Maybe they're not where you are, but they're a member of the body of Christ just like you. And when you sin against them, You sin against Christ. When the gospel transforms a life, yours and mine, it uncovers the formal idols of your life for what they were. Think about that in your own life. When the gospel transforms your life, for me it's been some years, and it's ongoing work of course, but when he comes into my life, the gospel uncovers the former idols in your life and shows, reveals them to be the substanceless frauds that they are, okay? That is to say, not that there's anything wrong with driving a fancy car, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, this, that, and the other behavior, but some of these things that we come into that prior to Christ had ultimate value to us. We're small G gods. We, we see them now in the light of the gospel as something that, is something that is not ultimate value, not ultimate meaning. I don't see it as something I would give my life to. I'm still going to go to work. I'm still, of course, going to be faithful to my, my relationship commitments. I'm still going to, you know, go to my lake house and do whatever it is that I do, right? But I no longer see them as, as, as gods in my life, okay? When, you, when the gospel transforms a life, it uncovers the former idols of your life for what they were. Some of you came into the Christian faith, maybe into church and even this one, from a, from a life where making money, accumulating wealth was an idol. Some of you came into the Christian faith where career success was an idol. Some of you came into the Christian faith where some kind of uh, you know, sexual experiences or sex itself was an idol. Some of you came into the Christian faith in the life where your commitment to politics was an idol. But now you know, now I know, these things hold no ultimate value. That is to say, they're not, there's not where ultimate meaning is found. And I can engage in those things in appropriate ways, and other things I didn't say, 
in a very comfortable way that is not uh, in a, of ultimate value to me. I can, I can use, as, even as we said this last week, I can, in, I, can, I can use the things of this world, chapter 7, verse 31, but not be engrossed in them. Okay? They don't have to play a central role in my life. But not everyone in the church possesses this knowledge. Okay? That's all he's trying to say. That's all he's trying to say. So be careful, be aware, and make sure that you, where you know. He's not saying, let me say this. Chuck Swindoll said this. If you know the name Chuck Swindoll, some of you wouldn't. He said, let me tell you what this passage is not saying. He's not responding to what some would call the professional weaker brother. Okay? What does he mean by the professional weaker brother? There are people who, it's the Christian who demands that everyone else complies with their personal hang-ups. Right? You have anybody like that in your life? Married to someone like that? I don't know. In other words, they decided that they have a lot of personal hang-ups about various behaviors, and as a Christian, you need to comply. But that's not what Paul is talking about here, if you read carefully this passage. Because the weaker brother or sister, as I mentioned, they, they tend to be legalists, not because they're, they just want to be a thorn in my side or your side. They tend to be legalists because they have a weak understanding of the gospel. So for me to adopt those behaviors, right? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go here. Morally neutral behaviors. To do that, to, to pacify them is actually a very bad idea because I'm reinforcing a misunderstanding of the gospel. I'm, I'm helping them to think that what it means to follow Jesus is that you have to um, do uh, earn your own salvation. You have to measure up. That's, not the, go- that's the opposite of the gospel, Okay? So doing, complying with these things is not helping them, it's hurting them. But what he is talking about here, if you read carefully the verses, right? Uh, uh, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. They're, they're not people that are criticizing you so much. They're people that respect you. They think you're a strong Christian. They see what you're doing and they say, I want to do what you're doing. It, it's, it's, a, it's a conflict in my heart. It's, it, 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 I find this a troubling uh, behavior or experience, but I'm going to do it because I respect you, and I'm following you into that temple. I'm following you into that watering hole. I'm following you into whatever the case may be, the morally neutral behavior, but as you're going in that door, you're, you're, you're easy going. You have a deep appreciation of the gospel. You're free. You're, you're, you don't have the wrong relationship with these behaviors, these environments. You're fine. You go home and sleep well. But they, on the other hand, they go into those experiences following you and it, weak, it, 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 it defiles their conscience. And all Paul's saying is when you know that about your friend, don't follow these, beha- refrain out of love. Right? Because it's ultimately, it's not about having the right answers, it's about having the right heart. And there's so many ways to apply this. Uh, it's, 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 uh, and I can't, you, you all have to do this math for yourself. Let me just give you one story that came to mind as I was thinking about it. It just impressed me. It's a 10, year, 10 years old or so, but it's, it's impressed me. And I don't know if it's in a perfect fit for this, but it's a guy I know. He's in this city. Been a, 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 has a business, he's a businessman, not a vocational minister. 
but does a lot of coaching and um, coached me for a couple years and mentored me for a couple years. And one of the things that's very, very important to him, if you got to know him, is he has a strong commitment to, let's call it racial diversity, cares about the issues of racial diversity and about economic um, diversity. He, these are passionate things for him. He talks about them. It's not his business, but he talks about them all the time. And he felt, this is maybe 10 years ago or more, that no one, I don't know that if anyone criticized him or not, but he lived in a, um, uh, one of the nicest neighborhoods in Rochester for many years. Raised his family in one of the nicest neighborhoods in Rochester for many years. Um, it's, it's an affluent neighborhood. I, I had imagined, I didn't do my, I didn't Google this. It's probably majority white neighborhood still to this day. Okay? He came to a place and decided for himself that he wanted to continue to have his influence, continue to say what he cared about, the things that he cared about. This was just one of the things he cared about, racial uh, 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 diversity, let's say, and greater economic uh, opportunity and diversity. These were things that he cared about. So he just made the decision to sell his house, cash in that, and moved to a um, more uh, less affluent neighborhood, more racially integrated neighborhood. No one told him to do it. I'm not telling you to do it. I'm just saying here was someone who said, that's what I'm going to do for my reasons of wanting to have greater influence with people. And it impressed me. And it could be something a lot smaller for you or for me, but the Apostle Paul is essentially calling for the cultivation of a loving community as the goal of our actions. That's what he's saying. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know because your knowledge needs to be increasingly informed by love. True Christian love is true Christian freedom and the older you get in the faith, the more it ought to bend toward love. And that's not always easy. Because what you're doing when you're making that choice in very small ways, medium ways, sometimes big ways, is you're putting other people's spiritual needs. It's not about conforming to their hang-ups right, and legalism. Putting their spiritual needs, taking into account their spiritual place if they're close in your life, if you have influence over them, over your freedoms. Okay? Over your freedoms. And he's going to end with Jesus, of course. True Christian liberty is modeled on the love of Christ, which is where we all ought to be thinking. Verse 13. Therefore, summary statement. What does this all mean? And he's going to start with himself. And this seems like an extreme statement to me, and it is an extreme statement. But he's willing to make it. And he's, and it, and he's on record for 2,000 years. If what I eat which is a very, not, if, if there's anything that could be a more uh, a morally neutral behavior, it'd be, what do you have for lunch today, right? If what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, let it be known, he's saying. I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Wow. Now, that's not easy, first of all, um, to know. How do I know? whether my good friend or good, you know, neighbor has these issues. So we, it, it's hard to know, and, but once you know it about your wife, your spouse, your friend, your neighbor, your, you know, your, your golf buddy, whatever, once you know it, it's not only, then it's also hard to do it, right? To make that choice 
because you have freedom in Christ. You know better. There's only one God in the world. Food doesn't bring you closer to God. Alcohol doesn't bring you closer to God or make you further away from God. Uh, you know, fill in the blank. Whether I have a, drive a, you know, a very fancy car doesn't make me further from God or closer to God. Fill in the blank. None of those things, we know that, right? But not all people possess that knowledge. True Christian liberty is modeled on the love of Christ. What he's saying is, to the strong brother and sister, is they put their weaker brother and sister, um, or serve their, make a decision in favor of their weaker brother and sister as a way to serve their growth and the growth of the church. That's the challenge, okay? That's the challenge, and it's tough, right? And there's, there's no formula here. Right? There's no formula here. It's, as I said at the beginning, it's not about having the right answers because it's going to be different for all of us. It's about having the right heart. And, 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 and so we have to ask ourselves this question, am I a strong Christian? I think Paul would say, most people would say, Paul in the category of weak and strong, he's strong. But he chooses in these three chapters to identify with the weak, right? Not to compromise the gospel, not to compromise the truth, not to endorse legalism, it's a fine line, but to do everything he can do. He makes this bold statement. If I know, he's just saying, I want you guys to know this. If I knew in my church community, First Corinth, the first community of Corinth church, if I knew that this had a lot of people in this church, even some, for whom me going to do that morally neutral thing of going to have a uh, play cards or have a meal at the, at, the, at the pagan temple on Monday, if I knew that other people were going to find that that was going to encourage them, discourage a greater appreciation and knowledge of the gospel, keep them from growing closer, then you know what? I'm taking that off my list. Okay, that's what he's saying. So that's what I want us to do. We're going to take this together and our time as we do once a month communion. But, you know, this is a very apropos uh, message, at least scripture passage, for communion. Because why do we do this, by the way, that many of you know this, some of you uh, maybe don't, but most of you do. The church has been doing this for years. We do it once a month. But why did Jesus Christ, even before he, the gospel was even ultimately um, procured in his death and resurrection, why did he make this point that I want you to do this in memory of me that became an ordinance for the church. There's only two. The church has only two ordinances. And they're both pointing to the same thing, which is the gospel. Because Jesus thought about this. He said, listen, here's what I know about people. um, They they drift from weak to strong all the time. What's supposed to be core um, becomes uh, confused by other things all the time. We, we're listening to the wrong things and, the, and the, the strength of the true knowledge of God's love and forgiveness which is central to our lives becomes muddied by other things. And he's saying, I want you to come back regularly and have a hard reset to understand that you are what you are by the grace of God. Here's what they, this, this could be said of, of, of a strong Christian. A strong Christian 
is someone, it's going to sound contradictory, who is fully accepted, right? I don't care what you did last year, 20 years ago, last night. As a Christian, theologically, from the scriptures, if you're a Christian, you, you, you're fully accepted. You're not 75. You're not 85. In Jesus Christ, because of what he has done, you are fully accepted. 100%. Period, paragraph. At the same time, you're a failure. Okay? At the same time. And see, this is a mature understanding of what, this is a strong Christian. And so I understand that I'm fully accepted in Jesus. On my best days and my worst days, I live out of that. The gospel is not about what I do for God, it's about what he has done for me. And, but I realize because it's all him, at the same time, I'm a failure. But it's okay, because my life is not about trying to remedy, ameliorate my failures. My life is about absorbing the love of Jesus Christ, starting every day with, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. I've given you uh, love because of my, it, it's rooted in me. Now I want you just to grow out of that love. Okay? I am both accepted fully, but I am a failure. And when I do that, I have a lot more compassion on other people. Amen? So, and the night he was betrayed. Let's, 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 encourage ourselves to think these thoughts. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, eat, this is my body which will be broken for you. Let's eat together. When supper was ended, he said, passed the cup and he said this cup represents my blood that will be shed on behalf of you for the forgiveness of sins tomorrow right do this remember that start every day with that let's drink together Pray with me. Jesus, Father, Spirit, we come to you at the, this service and just, Lord, um, want to thank you. I want to thank you uh, for what I still don't understand uh, very well. That is, that in your heart, before I ever breathed the breath, before the world came into being, uh, Lord, you decided um, on love for people like me. Uh, there was no waffling. You made a decision um, that you uh, loved humanity and that you were going to procure for them, each individual, the forgiveness of sin and the um, gift of everlasting life um, through the great demonstration and execution of the gospel of Jesus who came into the world not only to die for our sins but to show us how to live um, who opened not his mouth who um, didn't um, you know uh, lead with his credentials who didn't um, grasp for 
power, but gave it up so that we could see closer, deeper into the heart of reality. We could see deeper, closer into the true meaning of life, which is not about what we know, but about how we love and, our, and how we know the love of God in our own lives. Help us, Lord, as individuals, as a church, to truly be more changed by this love that we might then even begin to be more of a gospel witness with others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.